Joshua Cheney Guimond was a 20-year-old student at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. On the night of November 9, 2002, he was playing cards with his friends in their room. Around 11 p.m. he left, his friends thinking he went back to his own dorm. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. were to tell you there was a college out there that suffered a sex abuse scandal? What if I were to also tell you that this scandal went up to and included the football coach? In addition, what if I told you that the students and the alumni of this college were in total denial about the entire thing? I know what you'd be thinking. You'd be thinking of Penn State. You'd be thinking of Joe Paterno. You'd be thinking of Jerry Sandusky. You'd, of course, be thinking about the victims of Jerry Sandusky. Then finally, you'd be thinking about all of those students at Penn State currently and all the other students who went there and graduated, who to this day defend Joe Paterno and say that he didn't know anything about the scandal that happened for so many years on that campus. But I'm here to tell you that's not what I'm talking about in this show. In fact, you're going to hear about a sex abuse scandal that is much worse than what happened at Penn State. In fact, they're really not even close. In Penn State's case, there was only one sex abuser, Jerry Sandusky. Granted, other people covered up for him. But there was just one, and now he's in jail. But the story you're going to hear today involves multiple abusers and hundreds of victims. And a lot of those abusers are still walking around free men. At least you can say in Jerry Sandusky's case, he's behind bars. You're probably wondering, what college is this? What well, just happens to be the school where Joshua Guimond disappeared from, St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. In fact, by the time Joshua enrolled as a freshman at St. John's University, the scandals involving sex abuse on that campus had already been decades old, going back to the 1960s. And once again, I'm sure you're asking yourself, why haven't you heard about it? Well, I'm very fortunate to have on the show today a man who has been covering this sex abuse scandal. And well, I'll just let him tell his own story regarding all of it. I'm calling this episode Joshua Guimond in the Center of a Scandal. And now the facts of the case... This is a condensed version of what you'd be able to find at The Charlie Project. Joshua Guimond was a junior at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, majoring in political science. He had many friends, always looking to help them if they got into jams. His family has said Joshua hoped to have a future in law and politics. On November 9, 2002, he was at the Matin Court dormitory playing cards with friends. Around 11 p.m., he left the room, his friends thinking he was going to the bathroom. When he didn't return in a few minutes, they guessed he returned to his own dorm, St. Mar House, on the other side of the lake that sits on the St. John's campus. They called his dorm, but there was no answer. They thought he had gone to bed. The next day, his friends couldn't find Josh, and it was at this time they realized he had never reached his dorm the night before. In addition, his car on campus didn't look like it had been used. His glasses, contact lenses, and credit cards were all left behind. Over the days and weeks, the campus lakes were searched by divers, and the buildings were searched by dogs. 
although there were some hits by the dogs at various locations, no signs of Josh or anything he had with him that night were found. Josh's family believes he met with foul play, with the focus being some research Josh was doing at the time regarding St. John's and its scandalous history. If anyone has any information concerning the disappearance of Joshua Guimond, please contact the Stearns County Sheriff's Department at 320-259-3700. Just a few comments I'd like to make before you get to listen to the interview that goes along with this episode. The number of abusers and victims in this story are staggering. They're almost to the point of being unbelievable. And I say that from personal experience because that's the way I felt when I first started to learn about all of this. You also need to understand, and this is brought up in the interview, that it continues to this day. Also, You also have to understand that people disappearing because they, quote-unquote, knew something are rare. Maybe there might be some mafia stories regarding that, but once again, people who disappear or are murdered, let's say, because they knew something. In the wide world of missing persons in the United States, those cases are very, very small. So I want you to keep that in mind. You will have to make up your own mind whether Josh's disappearance had anything to do with what you're going to find out went on at St. John's University for all these decades. And as is usually the case, after this interview, I will offer up some other possibilities as to what could have happened to Josh. Now, my interview is with Patrick Marker. He is the owner and content provider for BehindThePineCurtain.com, a blog that has been covering St. John's University, the sex abuse scandals, and Joshua's disappearance for many years. And like I said before, I'll just let him tell his own story. I give you now my interview with Patrick Marker. I'm very happy to have on the show right now Patrick Marker of the website BehindThePineCurtain.com. Patrick, thank you for joining me. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Uh, there's so much to talk about when it comes to the, this subject matter, and I think the, the more we can more we can get the word out via any avenue, any channel is important, so I appreciate you having me on. You're welcome. I've portrayed uh, this case as a disappearance being intertwined with a conspiracy that goes, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a huge one, but it's also kind of an unknown one. I'd like you to talk about yourself and how you became involved in what has gone on at St. John's University over the past decades. Well, it was actually 25 years and one month ago that my case was made public in the media the case of sexual abuse by a monk at the prep school on campus at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. The campus of Collegeville includes not only St. John's University, St. John's Prep School. It also is the home to what once was the largest Benedictine monastery, I believe, in the world, certainly in North America, St. John's Abbey. It also includes an ecumenical center and a... a, um, the liturgical press, a a large printing outfit on campus. So there's a lot going on on campus there in Collegeville. They have their own post office. They have their own own, uh, fire department. Uh, They have their own incinerator and garbage plant. Now they have their own solar farm. Uh, Most anything you need you can get on campus and within that community. And it's been a tight-knit community of monks primarily, but then those who were educators and students for for decades, uh, for over 100 years, well over 100 years. Hmm. And so but 25 years ago and one month ago, uh, back in August of 1991, 
I decided that it was time to tell my story and to kind of break the break the lid, break the seal of secrecy that has been surrounding and over that that town of Collegeville for decades. I know that based on news reports that came out back in 91 that there were reports of misconduct in 1933. There was a murder about the same time on campus of a monk uh, killing another monk. Um, and this, you know, whether it be abuse or misconduct, um, in, in one case murder, there are have been stories of of evil and darkness mm-hmm. you know, for at least the last 80 years. When my family used to take our when in the mid 70s, before we moved to Minnesota from the Seattle area, we actually spent the summers, uh, several summers in the late 70s, on the campus of St. John's University. And how did that come about? How did that come about that well, you from Washington to Minnesota? My parents were very good Catholics. In fact, um, from the time I can remember, certainly my first communion until I, my first part of my freshman year in college, I missed two Sundays of Mass. I was sick on one occasion, and we were at Yellowstone National Park on one occasion. And I took pride in the fact that I missed only two Sundays my entire life going to church but i've more than made up for it because we would go because we were i was a catholic student from age five until i graduated from high school we went to mass sometimes daily um certainly in the grades five six seven and eight it was a daily thing mm-hmm. we just did and so my parents were very catholic and they'd gotten very involved with the natural family planning and the marriage encounter weekends and they heard about these conferences that were going on at saint john's university and they, I don't know if they were asked to participate, but they did participate in these, um, the Human Life Center, it was called. And the Human Life Center was run by a monk, uh, Father Paul Marx. And my parents got to know him, and they got to know the, the Human Life Center uh, staff through these uh, conferences that would go on for two weeks, I believe, each summer. And so in 1976 and 77 and 78, we, we went out to St. John's for the two weeks. And in 79, the conferences were held in the San Francisco area, so we went there. And then back in 1980, we went back to St. John's, and my parents took part in the Human Life Center conferences. Well, the kids, there were five of us at the time, mm-hmm. we uh, walked the campus, enjoyed the campus, went swimming, caught fish, went to the library, and one of our favorite things to do was to go to the library and rent this, or not rent, but watch a video mm-hmm. about the ghosts of St. John's, about the cracks and the churches, huh. and about the chapel out on the lake that were scary. And it was this, this, this old videotape that we would rent, and we probably rented every one of our trips out there, or, or viewed it anyway. But there was always this, it was interesting now, looking back, that back in the mid-70s, we were going to St. John's as kids, and the things that we would do... Um, we, we were very interested, at least I was anyway, in, in watching this tape. And we were all scared of these mm-hmm. ghosts of St. John's. And, uh-huh. and then years later, there were, they became real ghosts. Real ghosts. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent real, point, yes. Yeah. So in the summer of 1981, our, my parents were offered the job. They were offered the, the job of directing the Human Life Center, taking over for Father Paul Marks. And so we moved from Seattle area out to Minnesota. And... And I, and I ended up uh, attending school on campus at St. John's Prep School. It was then a school for grades 9 through 12, and now it's a school for 6 through 12. Mm-hmm. So we, I started school and um, was very homesick. And I'd grown up in, in the Seattle area. My, the first time I went to a football game, I remember, was uh, with, with a priest. The, a different priest taught me how to drive. I cut grass for a, th- a third priest. Um, priests were at our house often, if not every week. I mean, we had the Archbishop from Seattle at our house. It was just something that we were very comfortable and we were, you know, good Catholics, mm-hmm. probably ab- above average Catholics, I guess. And so, you know, when it, when a priest said, "Hey, I, I notice you're 
you're you're not fitting in here, or I, you know, I'd like to talk to you. You, you seem to be having some problems adjusting. I welcome the opportunity for this man to 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 listen and to perhaps provide some answers and some help and support. Yeah. Yes. And for a long time, he did that. Um, and and then at some point, it took a turn that was less than therapeutic and less than beneficial to me, and. Um, started a spiral of uh, misconduct and finally sexual abuse that was devastating. It was so devastating, in fact, that I don't recall thinking about it for six years. I know it affected me because mm-hmm. I've spoken, I've realized some of the things that I did in college and I've spoken with people that I went to college with and after college. So I know it affected me. Mm-hmm. Um, the abuse itself ended in 1983. It wasn't until 1989 that I actually realized what had happened through a series of nightmares and flashbacks. And I actually, here's where I have to thank Mm -hmm. my perpetrator. I actually thank my perpetrator because he could have easily said to me, Pat, I never did that. But, and those people who say, you know, repressed memory and, you know, those type of things aren't real. In my case, I don't know that it was a repressed memory, but I don't recall ever thinking about it. But when I did have to start dealing with it, the first phone call I made was to the priest, and I said, hey, I've got some issues here, and I need some help. And he admitted what he did, or at least validated what I did, and he apologized. But then he told me, and this was 1989, he told me that what he had done uh, certainly was was wrong, but he asked me, I'm not even going to say that he asked me, he expressed a concern that if he told his superiors what he did to me, Mm -hmm. that he would get kicked out of the monastery, he felt, because it had happened again. And I thought, at the time, I thought, oh, geez, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything with this. I don't want him Mm -hmm. to get kicked out of the monastery. It didn't register in my mind that what he was telling me was that he had other victims. Right, right. And That's exactly what he was saying. Right. Exactly. And I, yeah. and so I, I, I didn't do anything with it. He said, I said, listen, I need, I need. I told him I had gone through counseling. It was only because I had gone through counseling that I, I had the strength to call him. I was actually lying to him. I, I needed counseling badly and I ended up getting counseling later. But I, I didn't want to I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to hurt him. And so I said, listen, I'm I'm better. I'm better. It's okay. But I just need help paying for it. He said, Well I can't help you pay for it because if if, if, if they know what happened to somebody else, they're gonna they'll kick me out. So and that was So they so the monastery already knew that this priest had done something to somebody else. Is, right. But then yours would be the second or third or fifth or tenth or whatever, and that would be enough to come kick him out. Once wasn't enough. It would take two or more or something. Right. That's very strange. Right. Well, as as you'll learn as, yeah. we, as we speak along and, and continue along here, it wasn't. Right. It's it's actually par for the course, and there are some people who are four, five, six times accused before right. finally something happens to them. Yes, the listeners are definitely going to get an earful. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, it, so, so I, I first contacted him in 1989, and then uh, didn't do anything with it for a while. And then the flashbacks continued. The re- problems with the relationships continued, and I thought, you know what? It's time to, it's time to do something about this. And I remember being at a teaching conference. I was teaching at the time in, in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And I was at a, a, a conference later in, the, or later in the summer before the school year was to start. And I remember I was at the conference with my friend Mark, and we were eating, I believe, at a Perkins restaurant. And I picked up the USA Today newspaper, and I read a report about, the, I think it was the, uh, a meeting of bishops somewhere in the United States. And they talked about the prevalence about the, the numbers involved with sexual abuse mm-hmm. and, and was this was first... and this was 1989 which is still several years before the really huge blow up 
in the Catholic Church in the United States? I believe it was the summer of 1990. So I sat on this for a year. I'd made the phone call, didn't want to do anything to rock the boat in this priest's world, kind of was trying to help him out. And then I believe it was the summer of 1990 that I was at this conference and read the newspaper, saw the numbers and thought, wow, I, I need to do something about this. This is, I can't sit on this because this means that other people are going to have issues mm-hmm. and, and are going to try to solve these problems on their own that really aren't their problems to solve. They, they need help just like I need help. And so I did something that was, you know, I took a first step. I dialed 1-800-LAWYERS because I had seen a billboard or a phone book or something. I didn't know who to call. Mm-hmm. I dialed 1-800-LAWYERS, and I got in touch with this lawyer named Bob, and Bob and I met on a couple of occasions, and he said, listen, this is, this is too big for me. I, this, isn't, this isn't something that I do. And so he, he uh, put me in touch with a, a lawyer that he knew of by the name of Jeff Anderson, and that was, I believe, in the summer of 1990. And then in uh, the August of 1991, my lawsuit was filed. And that. And how, were, how old were you at the time? The, the, this, been, the filing of the, this lawsuit, how old were you at the time? I would have been 26. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was. That was the. Hmm. I don't know if that was the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the middle, but I can mm. tell you that every the ninety percent of my motivation for what I've done over the past twenty five years mm-hmm. came from a comment that Father Dan Ward, lawyer for St. John's and the St. John's monks at the time, he himself was a monk, mm-hmm. but he was also a canon lawyer. And he represented some of the monks. He represented my perpetrator. And he stood on the, the uh, steps of the Abbey Church being interviewed by a reporter. And he said that St. John's would deny all of these allegations. They didn't want to play it out in the media. They, they, you know, let mm. things take their course. But the fact that he was willing, after my perpetrator said to me, that he was sorry, and that, yeah, what he did to me was wrong, but that he couldn't help me. And then this man to stand up and announce to the public that they denied the allegations. So essentially calling you a liar. Essentially calling me a liar. That was uh, that was a turning point for me. I mean, that was a scary day. At that point, I was still John Doe. They didn't show my face. They showed the back of my head. And I was on camera for a bit, and... And I told a little bit of my story, and it was shared on the news. And all of a sudden, I was this John Doe, and nobody knew who I was. And to have this man then say, you know, this what he what this man is not saying is, or what this man is saying is not true. You know that that mm-hmm. motivated me. Yeah, I bet and it would. It motivated me to find out what other secrets were there were they hiding. So August of 1991 was the first step in me deciding it was time to learn the truth about St. John's. And so this 25-year journey has led me to a lot of truths. It's led me through uh, many lies. Uh, It's led me through a lot of dark stories. This weekend when I was in Minnesota, I was explaining to some friends of mine that I've spoken that I tell people that I've spoken with over 200 victims of misconduct at St. John's. Mm. And because I trust these people and they know me, I I backed up and I said, you know what? I've got to tell you the truth. I I tell people it's 200 because I I know that if I tell them the truth, they won't, that it's, it's almost, Mm. it is unbelievable. If I tell people that over the last 25 years, I've spoken with 300 victims of misconduct, it's almost too big for them to wrap their, arms around and they think, oh, he must be lying. Yeah. Unless you're involved with victims of sexual abuse and misconduct, unless you understand the, the dynamics and the realities at St. John's, 300 is impossible. 200 is, is ridiculous. Yeah. But then you do the math and you realize that, that 
Just a few years ago, St. John's had on their website, they said there have been 23 men who have been credibly accused of misconduct. Well, 23 perpetrators. You would ask most abuse support groups, um, advocates. You say, well, if, if a perpetrator's name is made public, the average number of victims they have is how many? And the number is usually 10. And we know that Finian McDonald, one of the monks at St. John's, is also a priest, but he's a monk from St. John's. Mm -hmm. He admitted to having over 200 sexual uh, encounters, different people, many of them minors. All so, from so the prep school that you... No, no, all, no, most of them from his overseas travel. Okay. But he had many victims at St. John's University and many victims from St. John's Prep School. And probably, you know, there are other things that happened on campus. There were leadership camps, music camps, uh, the boys' choir, all sorts of retreats. And just the number of people who went through that campus, stayed on campus, lived on campus, worked on campus. It was a, you know, going, taking from a 1980s movie, I think it was a target-rich environment for mm -hmm. perpetrators. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so going back to the numbers, though, if you, St. John's on their website admitted to 23 perpetrators. Well, if you, if you take even the small, you know, the average number of, of 10 perpetrators per, or 10 victims yeah. per perpetrator, yeah. you get to 230 right there. Well, I, I know for a fact that my I've spoken with over a dozen victims of my own perpetrator. I've spoken with over a dozen victims of several other perpetrators. Um, so a dozen you know, each. A, a, you, when you say a dozen, you don't mean dozen over 12, per, per, you dozen for, per, yeah. one, per one perpetrator. And I'm going to go back on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go back on my perpetrator, and I'm going to say, that if you do the math regarding the average number of victims that a perpetrator has, and you look at what the St. John's had published on their website a few years ago, before they took it down, of course, mm -hmm. that they had 23 perpetrators who had been part of their community. Well, if your average perpetrator has 10 victims, then you're up over 200 victims already. But we know from experience, my perpetrator and other perpetrators on campus, they had approaching a dozen or 15 or possibly 20 mm -hmm. victims. So the numbers get high very quickly. Yeah. And, and St. John's, while they've admitted to having 23 perpetrators in their midst, my website makes it clear that that number is low, and I believe the number of perpetrators who has, or I, be, I believe that the number of perpetrators who have come through the St. John system is approaching 100 now, whether it be monks uh, on campus, whether it be visiting priests who have come to the School of Theology, uh, whether it be lay people on campus, um, whether... Uh, it'd be, you know, I, I talked about visiting monks. There were a couple of visiting monks who, uh, who showed up to get an education, and they abused while they're on campus. It's like, how in the world do these people end up at St. John's? Certainly, St. John's isn't the only place in the world that where sex abuse was a problem. Right. But I would, I would challenge anyone to find a concentrated community of offenders and in a place that was so attractive to other offenders with numbers higher than St. John's in Collegeville, Minnesota. And I, I challenge yeah. them and believe I will win that challenge because I don't believe there's a higher concentration of sexual perpetrators than what I have discovered on that campus over the last several decades. In fact, you could say that maybe that the reason that's the case is because the priests who were there were telling other ones to come there, probably. The culture at St. John's has 
this, this, the culture at St. John's has not been and continues to not be healthy with regard to sexuality. And it's been that way for several decades. The type of person that was attracted to come to St. John's uh, to become a monk and to study uh, in the School of Theology, that the type of person that was attracted here and was was different. Mm-hmm. Um, how to explain different? I can tell you this. Mm. While I've gone about my research over the last 25 years, I've spoken with hundreds of victims. I've spoken also with dozens of monks who left the monastery. And the reason they left is this, in almost every instance, is because they didn't want to be a part of the problem. They realized what was going on mm-hmm. on campus. They realized what was going on in the monastery. It wasn't Catholicism that was being taught at St. John's. It was this radical view of, of Christianity. It was actually it was a, not even a, it was a radical view of selfishness and what can the church do for me and what can I get as a member of the St. John's community. The, the, the hmm. St. John's attracted a lot of well-intentioned men, and most of those men left. And the people that stayed behind were the weaker, the I don't, know. I don't know, the more susceptible, the more controllable, the uh, people that just wanted to go along with the program. Yeah, the, men who, the men who weren't strong enough to leave became part of a system that compromised people, compromised their own community of monks, and then it compromised the community of believers, and then it compromised a population of young people through sexual abuse, misconduct, and control that has left a a very black cloud that exists to Mm -hmm. this day over St. John's. And there are so many Johnny loyalists. They bleed Johnny red. And God Mm -hmm. bless them. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic to be loyal to a university and to a campus and to a cause. But when you turn a blind eye, when the St. John's says on their website that we have 23 credibly accused, and nobody pays attention to it. Or that there's lawsuit after lawsuit in the public eye, and nobody pays attention to it. Or one of the students disappears from campus, Mm -hmm. and it's treated as though somebody lost a key. You know, let's look for it for a few days, and then let's pretend it didn't happen. And that's what's happened, is we're pretending that Joshua Guimau never disappeared. And, and that has to change. Attention needs to be paid to all of these things. Attention has to be a pay, attention has to be paid to a campus um, and an environment that is toxic and that is is just so debilitating. Um, there are people <laughs> it's just amazing Ah, I don't even. That's not mm-hmm. more to go with that. I mean, it's just—it's amazing the number of people who are loyal to St. John's but can't stand the place. They—they they have not. They, their parents work there. They work there. I mean, I've spoken with current employees, who, I mean, this are, this is what they do. Where, where else are they going to work? You know, mm-hmm. if you if you work there, you get free tuition. So I can't I can't blow the whistle. I can't. Yeah. I can't, can't stop. I can't stop donating. I don't know. In fact, if you go to my website behind the pine curtain, and somebody uh, within the leadership finds out about it, you will have a consequence. I mean, it's it's. There have been memos sent out about visiting the behind the pine curtain website. You know, it's just there's such mm-hmm. this. There's a fear. And it, it, and the point is, is that it's just not you know. For example, students said that they're there, but even 
afterwards, once they graduate, and even if they find out, even if they're there and they never even knew that all this sexual abuse has gone on for the last how many decades, they still remain loyal to St. John's University. Well, and to an extent, they should remain loyal because that's their university. In fact, mm -hmm. I've been accused several times of, of, you know, picking on the university when they say, well, well, it's not the university, it's, it's the monks. And, and the monks were the university for a long time. And the monks are still part of the university. And, and these, these people who support the football team and support the basketball team and, and love the, the way the leaves turn in the fall and can't wait to come out, you know, it's, it's a beautiful campus. But what people don't realize, and this is what I've been saying forever, there's so much deception, and there have been so many lies told, and there's been so much abuse on campus. If we were to have gone back to 1989 or 1991 when I came forward and started mm -hmm. fixing this, or there was a major lawsuit settled in October, or a series of lawsuits that were settled in uh, 2002, in October of 2002, there were more lawsuits uh, settled in 2012. You know, take any one of those dates, 1991 or 2002 or 2013, at any point in there, we could have started um, telling the truth. We could have worked toward full disclosure. But instead, they've decided to try to hide the truth and try to cover up what's actually gone on there. And all they're doing is delaying the inevitable. I, I've said for years now that we must... We must tell the truth, dig it up, and then bury it properly. And mm -hmm. then we can move on. But because they're so afraid of telling the truth, because it is going to have some major ramification, because that means that their list of 23 is incorrect. My list of almost 100 is correct. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of fallout that's going to come when, when they admit that the number is actually closer to 100 than it is to their 23. And they'd like the public to believe that it's a low number and that it's all been dealt with and that the perpetrators are on these uh, safety plans and that they can't travel unless they're escorted and that there's really no issues and that nothing's happened in the last several years or sorry, nothing's happened in the last 20 years, they try to tell people. Mm -hmm. um, discounting the fact that, that just a couple of years ago, one of the priests did miss, did uh, was credibly accused of misconduct on campus, and he, uh, and this is within the last five years, he was removed from campus and was sent to Missouri, where uh, the the worst of the monk pedophiles, the priest pedophiles, actually go for treatment. And this is within the last ten years. This happened, I believe, in the last five years. But it, they don't want to tell that truth because that truth brings consequences, and that's something that St. John's uh, wants to avoid because they they keep telling their constituents that it's in the past. It's in the past. Why don't the American people know more about this? Given the Even if it's just 23, which is still horrible, why don't the American people know about this? Is it because it's not, you know, to draw another example, Penn State, or because it's not a huge school, or is it because it's in Minnesota and not in California? What insight do you have on that? Because it's an incredible, disturbing story. Well, there are other there are other stories like it around the country. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you know, Boston, uh, number one, um, mm -hmm. and it's just people don't want to hear the story. They don't. You, you don't. Very rarely do you read a story like this and say, "Hey, I want more information about that," unless it happened to someone in the family or to you. So in a way, um, I would say to answer your question, mm. all of those things. And in addition, people are burned out by it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a, sad, that's a sad truth that people have heard this story so many times that they don't want to hear it again. But when it affects family members and when it affects your, it affects your community, um, you, you need to pay attention. Um, there are so many secondary victims of these types of crimes, of this type of conduct and misconduct, that it is really affecting 
an entire community. Certainly, the entire St. John's community has been affected by it. And people will say, oh, everything's fine. It's in the past. But, you know, that's not, that's not true. And there's this, it, it would be nice to, it would be nice if it was. And I'm all for that. I've offered my services many times to try to help clean things up on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the last times I was on campus um, was, was my, my 30-year class reunion back in 2013 I was excited to go there I I, I was mm-hmm. so looking forward to this reunion and, and you know spending time with these classmates of mine I hadn't seen in 30 years I contacted many of them as part of my research but it was all discussion about abuse and misconduct and rarely did we talk about you know the baseball team and mm-hmm. and school events it was all focused on one thing and certainly i hadn't spoken to them about my family or going salmon fishing or doing the things that i did as an adult so i was looking forward to connecting with these classmates of mine so i went to the reunion and was sitting down at at a table enjoying my lunch Uh, i think there were seven other of my classmates there and and there were uh alumni from different uh years as well so there was a good crowd out in front of the the St. John's Prep School, and we were enjoying the lunch and had just listened to a presentation by one of the monks before the lunch, but there we were under the tents in the sun um, eating lunch, and I saw some security guards approaching, and I thought, well, this, this could be interesting, because <laughs> they were looking at me, and I thought, all right, well, let's, let's see how this plays out. So one of the, the security guards came over to me and said, Mr. Marker, I said, yes, he said, you need to leave been asked to leave campus and I said I said leave I've, I've just got here you know I'm having lunch go away he says no you've been trespassed you must leave I said wait a minute I said I have a ticket and I showed him my ticket and I said I'm eating lunch I'm going to finish my lunch and then I'm, I, I will leave after that he says no you'll need to leave right now if you don't I'll call the sheriff and all right well, I said call the sheriff I, I would welcome that I'm going to get back to my lunch. So I continued eating my lunch, and the sheriff showed up. And as the sheriff walked over, the security guard from St. John's announced to the sheriff. I shouldn't say announced. He said Mm -hmm. loud enough for the rest of the people at the reunion to hear that I had a restraining order against me, and I wasn't allowed on campus. And that was a, a lie, a complete lie. There had never been a restraining order placed on me nor had I ever been trespassed by St. John's. But he made this announcement to the sheriff and to the, to the people that within earshot that, that I had a restraining order, and the sheriff asked me to come over to his vehicle in the parking lot, and I did so. And the security guard again said that I had a restraining order, and the sheriff said that I would have to leave. So I said, okay, I will do that, and they asked where my car was. I said I didn't have one. I said that the person I came with, that they were still enjoying their lunch, and I didn't want to interrupt them. And so I walked off campus. And if you know the campus, the St. John's Prep School, where we were, is toward the back of the campus. And so I walked down the hill and in front of the Abbey Church and past the football field, and, and out I walked. Wow. And... And you never... When you were going this, this never occurred to you that this might happen before you got there, especially considering your history with the school? I've always been respectful of the people on campus, the jobs that they have to do. I've never interrupted a mass. I've Mm. never shouted something. I've never held up a sign. I've never protested. I realize that, you know, they have a job to do, and, and that's not in my best interest and it does, it's not the best way to get the word out. Mm-hmm. And for that day, the thing that I had been looking forward to was spending time with my classmates. And it never occurred to me that they would try to do this. Hmm. I had a feeling the, the headmaster, the principal, if you will, the headmaster of the school, um, it didn't help that a month or so before that I had made public the fact that he had been credibly accused of misconduct. Yeah, that wouldn't so help. That probably didn't help things. Right. 
but it was true. In fact, in 2003, I was on a review board with this gentleman, Father Jonathan Lakari, and he was. Re I was on a review board. And the The goal of the the mission of the review board was to help clean up the issue of sexual abuse on campus. And I was named to this review board. There were nine members of the of the board, and and. After the third meeting of this review board, we met every month. I flew from Seattle to Minnesota every month for three years. And after the third month that we met in 2003, this priest, Jonathan Lakari, was removed from the board. And he was removed from the board because of an incident of mixed conduct with an underage female at a parish, uh, or while he was working at a parish in the Minneapolis area. Mm -hmm. And this is why he was removed from the review board. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and then 10 years later, he gets a job as the headmaster at St. John's Prep School. And I wrote a letter to the abbot saying that that was a wholly inappropriate position for this man to be in because the same people that he was going to be overseeing, they were the same age as his minor victim at the time he was removed from the review board. In addition, because there was a history of misconduct with Father Jonathan McCarty, it would be devastating if another incident were to arise because they would have had previous notice. Right. I suggested that it was, it was suicide for the prep school to name this man as headmaster. But... They went forward with it, and in fact, to this day, three years later, he remains headmaster at prep, the prep school. And it's a ticking time bomb. I, I, yeah. I worry about the students at that school, and I worry about the community of St. John's with his position. So, yeah. And I believe, and have been told, that I believe that he was part of the effort to have me expelled from campus that day and that it was a calculated uh, it was set up that it was something that was mm -hmm. planned and it was you know is set in place before I even walked on campus that day well given all this and we've got a we've got a nice setup uh, for where we're going about to go next mm -hmm. and that is so Josh Gweeman shows up at St. John's University and he disappears in 2002. What was he doing there? Do we know anything about – did he know about any of this when he became a student there? And then why is it that there are many people, myself, maybe yourself included, who think that all of this might have something to do with Joshua's disappearance? What, what might have made – what he, him do, being there, what might have made him uh, disappear on campus possibly? Well – Joshua Guimon was a student at St. John's University. Mm -hmm. And there are so many possibilities of what could have happened to Josh. And we know that it wasn't just minors that the perpetrators on campus were attracted to. There's been a long history of misconduct uh, by monks on campus with uh, college students. A long history of it. And St. John's doesn't want people to know that history. In fact, they, they, they spent a lot of time. Early on, they, they listed the names of those monks who had been credibly accused of sexual misconduct with non-minors, with adults, with college students. But then, as time went on, they realized that, hey, the, it's, our numbers will go down if we just concentrate on uh, the, the monks who were credibly accused of misconduct with minors. So they, they stopped talking about misconduct with college students. And there, there are more college, I, I, I believe, and I'd have to check my notes on it mm -hmm. in my research, but I think there have been at least as many, if not more, college students uh, victims of misconduct than minors on campus. So we're so, talking about when we say college students, we mean adults, 18 and over, inappropriate right. but not technically illegal. Right. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. And so that so St. John's is really trying to press that 
that difference there. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's just the way they've, they've done their business is that misconduct, misconduct by a monk with a minor isn't as bad as sexual misconduct with a college student, which is just hogwash. But yeah. they, it, it's, it's been in their favor and to their advantage to look at it as a, a legal issue than an ethical issue. And so that's the that's always been the the issue at St. John's. But let's be clear about something: being that we're talking, you know, talking about Josh Greenman, there's no evidence out there that he was ever abused by a monk. He ever had an, a relationship with anybody at the facility there, whether it's a male or a female. There's no allegations of there, that at all. There are no allegations that he was a victim of misconduct. He certainly knew uh, the population of monks. He had them as teachers. He had them as as uh, resident uh, advisor or faculty residents mm-hmm. living in his dorm. Uh, uh, he was uh, friends with one of the monks, uh, Brother Willie, and uh, I'm told that he was the night watchman on campus, uh, officially or unofficially, uh, that had been mm-hmm. his role at one point. And he was one of the older guard, and that he, uh, I'm told that he and Josh shared stories and, and uh, got along quite well. Mm-hmm. But no, there was there. No. Josh was never targeted that I am aware of, nor a victim of it. Although mm-hmm. he would have come across in just his day-to-day business uh, several monk perpetrators because they were still and are still on campus. And still, fourteen years later, they're still there. Still there, sure. Okay. Um, and so he would have certainly been exposed to them, would have crossed paths with them. And, and so would have had interaction with some of the named perpetrators on campus. And so what we also know that about Joshua is he was doing some sort of research paper into all of this. According to his parents, yes, there was mm-hmm. a, a research project that he was either interested in or had already begun on the sexual abuse on campus. And not the abuse itself, but the cover-up, that he had been very frustrated um, Josh was uh, uh, had a sense of justice about him. He he knew right from wrong, and he was frustrated when people were treated unfairly. Um, he represented, I'm told, his friends when his friends would come up, you know, when even when they were, even when something went wrong that they were responsible for, he was there to assist them to uh, to get. Uh, to help them work through their issues. He had a, um, uh, the thing I'm trying, he would help, I mean, I'm told he helped somebody get out a speeding ticket, for instance. Hmm. Uh, if they were accused of, if, if one of his friends was accused of something, he was kind of like the go-to guy. He was the in-house unofficial lawyer for the group where he would help people uh, say the right thing or do the right thing in order to minimize the effect of what they had done, to minimize their sentence. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, he, he knew the system. He knew how to work the system. Uh, and uh, he tried to help as many people as he could. But he didn't find out about what was going on at St. John's University until he got there. Right? He It wasn't yeah. like his uh, – I don't know who was paying for his education, but um, his parents or he didn't know about this until he got there, from all we know. Oh, certainly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, and, and most people don't. Even there are people on campus right now who their their parents who sent their students there. Some of their some of these parents. I get emails all the time. You know, I've been there for three years. I had no idea that this stuff is part of St. John's past. I mean, it's just amazing the emails right. that I receive. The people say, I, "I have no idea. What can I do?" I mean, this is this is mad. I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense for this long history. This this fine institution to have this long history and yet nobody knows about it. So yeah, that's why I asked you before about you know how is it that a lot of people still don't know and there's actually people going there that are just now finding out about it. You know, there are people are going there who will are. I mean, they're at school. It's it's now late September. Hmm. They are on campus right now as a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior, they don't know about the previous abuse. They don't know that they've already walked past two credibly accused perpetrators of sexual misconduct today. And mm-hmm. by the time they graduate, they still may not know about it. Wow. 
So we have Josh. He's doing this paper. Was he doing it for a class, or was he doing it on his own? Well, again, I'm I, I'm working only on what the family's told yes. me here. Yes, I understand that. I understand. He was working that. on it for a class, uh, and that's as much as I know about that. That he was interested and uh, by the amount mm. of misconduct that had occurred on campus, and that he was doing a paper on it. And there are also allegations that somebody got into his computer after he left, after he disappeared. Well, is there are a couple points with that. Yes. First of all, there is evidence that after Joshua disappeared, items were erased from his hard drive. I think that's fairly well known and mm -hmm. an established fact. Okay. Beyond that, there's... You know, there have been things found on his hard drive, um, fake IDs. Um, even. So in 2010, I had access to Joshua Demon's hard drive. By this time, the Stearns County Sheriff had already looked at it, and a professor from St. Cloud State University had had, had, had access to it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I found when I ran some data recovery tools on it was a search that Joshua had performed or whoever was using Josh's computer. And my understanding is that he used, when he was logged in under his name, that it was him using it. So I have every reason to believe that this was a Joshua Gimone search. And he searched for Abby statute of limitations conspiracy. Wow. And this is in line with what the parents said he was doing his paper on. Mm -hmm. This date also coincides with a major settlement of sexual abuse claims made by, I believe, 12 victims against 11 different perpetrators on campus. So we've got this October of 2002 search that Joshua is performing. We've got this paper that he's said to be writing. Mm -hmm. We have a major settlement on campus. Was that one of the, would you call that, being that you're the authority on this, would you call that a major milestone in what has gone on, you know, with all of these these charges over the years? Was that, October 2002, to me, sounds like a big deal. It's a huge deal, because it was, the, it was, St. John's took credit, here's the thing, St. John's mm. took credit in October of 2002 for doing the right thing. The abbot at the time, and he's still there as abbot, Abbot John Clausen took credit for doing the right thing and finally addressing sexual abuse in a way that was fair, in a way that was compassionate, in a way that was, was honest. And this is what was sold by St. John's and others to the community, the St. John's community. And it was all, it was all a lie. It wasn't compassionate, it wasn't fair, and it wasn't honest, that this was this was the end of the story, really. It was being presented as the end of the story, that finally we had reached the end and that we could all start moving on. And one of the things that they did as a result of this large settlement was to name eight people to a review board that, moving forward, would be in place to address all future claims of misconduct and would really help the abbot clean up what was mm -hmm. left of the filth uh, at St. John's. And so it was hailed as this major uh, achievement that would be duplicated and replicated around the country, if not the world, of how to handle sexual abuse in a compassionate pastoral manner. And as time has passed since 2002, we've come to realize that that wasn't the, the end of anything, but it was, it was merely just a continuation to the lies that had been told the whole time and continue to be told. Right. So, so did Joshua Gimon know more than the average student about sexual abuse and sexual misconduct on campus? I believe so. He had conversations, I'm told, with his parents about it. I'm told that he was he was writing a paper about it. I don't mm -hmm. have evidence of that, but even mm -hmm. without evidence of a paper, we still know that that conversations were being were being had. And he had been speaking with uh, 
monks on campus who he he had developed friendships with. And so we know that he had an awareness. We also know that on the outside, St. John's was being presented as a model, but on the inside, there was much turmoil regarding this settlement in October of 2002. And that concludes part one of my interview with Patrick Marker from Behind the Pine Curtain. You'll be able to find part two at Podomatic and iTunes. I would urge you to subscribe to this podcast at both locations. I'm Ed Densel, and you have been listening to Unfound. Unfound.